The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, of course, here in the U.S., we have the S&P year-to-date off more than uh, 20% and the NASDAQ close to 30%. But when you go over to the U.K., it's not nearly as bad. The uh, FTSE down around 9% from its high uh, of the year. Uh, so just some, you know, a little bit better performance, but it's been a crazy, I don't know, week or 10 days over in the UK. Let's get the latest of what's going on in the UK and the Euro markets. We do that with Tim Craighead. He's a director of research and senior European strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based in London. Tim, mm. crazy time for the UK market in just the, I'm talking the stock market, the currency market, the bond market in the last 10 yeah, days. Yeah, because you're only down 9% from the in peak. pounds. Yeah. But at the beginning of the year, a pound was a dollar thirty-five. Right now, it's a dollar twelve. <laughs> so give us the overview. Well, the, the the currency issue is always an interesting one. Year to date, I'll make it even sound better. Year to date, the FTSE's down about five and a half percent. But again, in local currency. Um, so look, it it has been crazy. I actually used that word earlier this morning in something I was writing, and. Um, you know, part of this is what's going on with politics, with a new prime minister putting forward some policies that clearly have caused a stir. Part of this is um, folding through into the bond markets where we've had a catharsis of sorts because of some, you know, I won't go into the detail, but this thing called liability driven investments, which is how pension plans across the UK have been trying to deal with the low interest rate environment has caused sort of havoc um, and all sorts of, um, of issues like even the uh, the Bank of England, while it wants to tighten policy, it's had to be buying bonds to make sure that the market was functioning appropriately. All sorts of craziness. And in the end, um, you know, we end up with the UK trading at about the FTSE trading at about 8.7 times forward earnings, uh, which is pretty freaking nice uh, from the standpoint of valuation. The question is, where do we go from here? And we're looking right in the teeth of, uh, of, of third quarter earnings. And um, uh, I think that's the, that's the key for the overall European market right now. We haven't seen negative revisions. We think still, we're going to see Well, them. I guess it, they, 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 their heads are still spinning from what's happened over the past couple of weeks, right? But um, well, you know, the, the thing, Matt, I think this is like super interesting. You know, there's always a question of consensus numbers and, you know, are they, re is that really what investors are thinking? The third quarter may be the period where we see negative revisions, but stocks bounce because the market's already there. Um, and if that's the case, along with some technical indicators that show a washout, maybe that's a good indication, but I think you got to watch how stocks trade on bad news. Shell today was off on bad news. That's not a good indication. 
so in in the UK and and across Europe, I mean, is the expectation that a recession is going to be longer, deeper, perhaps than maybe the market's discounting, or what's the market discounting? Do you think? Yeah. So uh, our our work is suggesting that the market right now is discounting uh, a low single digit decline in earnings for 2023. If we end up having excuse me, a 10% plus cut in 2023 earnings and broadly across Europe, we still have some downside, you know, and it's one of those things where um, the everybody's talking recession, um, but there's still hope that we sort of skirt through. Um, and, and frankly, part the of this is going to be the weather. Hope. <laughs> exactly. Part of this is going to be the weather, you know, yeah, how cold I mean- is it? And how much energy do we have to curtail from a business perspective to keep people warm? You know, Matt, I thought I just pictured Tim hard at work at his desk in Queen Victoria Street. Not the case. Nice, <laughs> France. Explain yourself, Tim. What are you doing in Nice, France? I, I am. I am at a. I am at a, a conference where tomorrow I will be presenting on some of the longer-term structural issues that are causing higher for longer inflation. And what does it mean? So, all right, let's front yeah, run your it, let's front run your talk. What are some of the structural reasons? So, so our basic premise, and I'm I'll give full credit to Gina Martin Adams because a lot of this is based off some of the good work that she's been doing. But you think about demographics that are reducing labor supply, all else being equal. Uh, you think about deglobalization, which is reducing or accelerating the trend of the cheap import being a source of disinflation, you know, that's that's yesterday's news. Anything about decarbonization, which is not only driving investments that are sucking up basic commodities, but it's also reducing investment in things like hydrocarbon fuels, all of which keep energy prices and probably even underlying metals higher for longer. You take those three and you end up with Inflation that, yes, it may come off the boil, but we're not going back to pre-pandemic levels. And if inflation is that way, then bond rates, you know, interest rates are going to stay somewhat elevated. And that all helps drive increased volatility in markets. Right. All right. So it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where then it depends. There's still opportunities because, you know, markets do price some of this stuff in. But clearly, um, we've been through a, a rough patch and yeah. there's still some sloppiness to come. All I know is that when I'm asked to speak at a conference, it's usually in Cleveland in January. You know, not Nice, France. In I, I seem to think, Paul, you you've made the trip from New York to Cannes before. I think I might the, have done that. French you, Riviera. you might be right. You might be right there calling me out. Tim Craighead, Director of Research, Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, reporting live from Nice. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I guess OPEC Plus just finished up their first in-person get-together. 
uh, since March of 2020. That was in Vienna. That closed up yesterday. A lot going on in the global space. Uh, so we need to check in with Amina uh, Bakker, Chief OPEC Correspondent and Dubai Deputy Bureau Chief for Energy Intelligence. Um, I mean, I, I know you're back in London after spending time in, in Vienna. I'd love to start with just these crazy stories about the um, the Nord Stream leaks caused by detonations uh, and maybe a sign of, of, of sabotage. What's the latest that you know? Um, yeah, the latest is that there is a Swedish uh, investigation into the pipeline leaks and uh, their uh, suspicion is of sabotage. Um, and uh, yeah, they basically said that uh, they there might have been an incident. Uh, they're still investigating. We understand that Russia isn't part of the, the team that investigating what happened but um they said that there was also extensive damage caused to these pipelines and there's no clear timeline or budget on how uh these pipelines are going to be repaired so a lot of uncertainty there so i mean obviously they're not coordinating with russia <laughs> nobody is in the west but opec seems to be right yeah. <laughs> um the i just think astounding the cut even if they don't really cut two million barrels and we're hearing that um the reality could be could be less than a million um it still sends a message to the west opec is firmly on the side of china and russia in this sort of new paradigm this new world order could it be any clearer or am i just uh, seeing this too cynically uh, it's you're stating the obvious and you're stating something that I think the general public uh, would like to buy into. And more and more, I think this war has really polarized uh, the East and the West and taking a neutral stance against this war is no longer acceptable. I find that, you know, uh, countries are being forced to uh, to take sides. And if they don't take sides, uh, their actions are uh, are immediately uh, and indicative of which side they're on. And that's the case with OPEC plus, I think. I mean, on, at the U.N. General Council, you saw many of the Gulf states, actually all of the Gulf states voted uh, against the war. Everybody wants to see an end to this humanitarian crisis. It's it's not fair to, to let it to go on um, with OPEC plus. Yes, the headline figure is two million barrels barrels a day cut. Uh, we're probably going to see a cut of a million barrels a day, a little bit under. Uh, we'll see how that goes. It depends on the countries. Um, it does send uh, a bad uh, signal to uh, many of the consumer states. You saw the reaction from the U.S., from the Biden administration, especially uh, saying that it's uh, it's the wrong move uh, mm. and so on. The move was, it was criticized. Um, but oil prices didn't move that much. True. Uh, they're at $93. I mean, that was like a 2% jump. So Why? Um, because there is so much uncertainty in the market. I mean, the reason they took this uh, step is one, there's been unpre unprecedented uncertainty on both the demand and the supply side. We've never seen this uh, level of uncertainty before uh, in the past three decades or so. So they needed to prepare themselves. They needed to free up more spare capacity in anticipation that when the EU sanctions and when the price caps come into effect, we are going to see a disruption in oil supply from Russia. At Energy Intelligence, we estimate um, oil supply from Russia to be uh, reduced by a million point uh, uh, 1.2, sorry, million barrels a day. Uh, and somebody needs to make up for that su supply. So if they don't cut now and free up more spare capacity, they won't be able to supply the market again. Um, so I would 
just wait and see how OPEC plus reacts when we get a disruption. Uh, I'm sure some of that supply is going to come back. Uh, I mean, just about 30 seconds. How bad is it going to be from an energy consumption and availability this winter in Europe? Well, uh, it is. I mean, we, we've heard that a lot of European countries have uh, have stocked up. They seem to be better placed in, uh, compared to uh, in, in previous months. They're prepared. Um, but th the problem is not just this winter. How about the, the coming one? Um, the energy crisis is going to continue mm. uh, with us for a while. So, yeah. All right. Good stuff. Uh, Amina Baker, uh, Bar Bakker, uh, Chief OPEC Correspondent in Dubai, Deputy Bureau Chief for Energy Intelligence, giving us kind of the latest coming out of the European energy uh, situation. Uh, very difficult with the war, obviously, uh, in Ukraine and the supply that was critical for much of Europe uh, from Russia now dramatically curtailed. We had the OPEC Plus meeting uh, in Vienna the past couple of days. And uh, again, the headline coming out of there is OPEC Plus agreeing to cut production uh, by 2 million barrels per day. Um, and we'll have to see what that means for this market going forward. We're going to continue our energy discussion. We started off um, this half hour kind of getting from the European perspective, coming out of Vienna on the global stage. Let's take a look at the U.S. energy space. We do that with Scott Levine, Senior Energy and Industrial Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Scott, we've had a little bit of a stabilization here in oil prices. Talk to us about the oil stocks you know, I think about some of the oil services names that you follow, like Halliburton and Schlumberger. Those stocks have done great. Is the energy play done for investors, or is there still more room to go? I think there is uh, more room to go, Paul. Um, the reality here is that while these stocks have had a great year, as you mentioned, they've had a lousy run uh, for the preceding five years. Or and, decade. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> longer than that, right? Like, so, uh, so you know, the backdrop here is, is that the industry had been obsessed with growth and uh, uh, had uh, ignored uh, returns, and as a result of that, had lost the confidence of the investment community. And so, uh, in order to get that back, they really need to demonstrate uh, discipline. And so, in a year where we've seen oil push $120 in, the, in March after the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. Uh, even before that, we saw oil prices rise and investors really wanted to make sure that uh, the industry was going to be measured in terms of uh, capitalizing that and growing in a disciplined manner. And so we've seen that. And, uh, and I think the companies continue to demonstrate confidence that they will be restrained and, and grow within uh, uh, a certain level of, of, of rational behavior and but is there any way capital. to talk them out of that i mean drill, is there is baby there, drill right? is there any way to get them to pull all the oil out of the ground here because otherwise we have to send our president over to saudi arabia having him court mohammed bin salman or um you know change the rules so that we can remove sanctions from countries like venezuela and tap their oil like why don't we just get our own the industry can't grow like that, you know, even though you can add a little bit more rigs here on the margin, here and there, et cetera, to ramp up production and ramp down production is a much more gradual process. So even in an environment like this, you see a spike in oil of $10, $15 in a given week, and we've seen it up $8 or close to that this week. You're not going to see rig count on Friday jump by 15 or 20 or anything like that. It'll be up by one or two. See, I think I'm just going to go down to Texas myself and put a hole in the ground, get some rig equipment. Yeah, what? It's holding them back. That, Is it just that discipline? Do they not trust the government? Um, or do they not really have that much spare capacity to tap? 
Yeah, no, there is capacity. I think the, the it's a combination of the way the business works and the fact that ramping production is a gradual process and also the past five years. And then they're committed to winning investors back to this sector after a lengthy downturn. And, and, and they're committed to grow in a rational manner. That's yeah, really yeah, yeah. The, uh, the key answer there. All right, anytime we talk energy, we need to get the political angle because it is a political football. And to do that, we welcome Joe Matthew, uh, Bloomberg uh, News down in Washington, D.C. We got him in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. You so doing sound on? You doing sound on from here today? Right from this spot, yes. Oh, nice. nice. All right, Joe. So I love this, this administration, studio. it's not well loved by our good friends down in Texas and <laughs> Oklahoma. I mean, how do you think the administration or the just the political wins in D.C. are about our energy policy? Well, it's just it, it really has become a game of trust here, right? I had a, a former uh, energy official from the Trump administration on the program last night. And he says, hey, we got the ban rolling here uh, within a year that, that the Biden administration, if there were guarantees that came with the pleas for more production, could in fact start to see a meaningful increase within a year or so. I don't know if that's even realistic, but the Biden administration says, no, they're sitting on 9,000, you know, leases right they're now. Still and the truth, that? Absolutely they are. And the, the, of course, the truth is probably somewhere in between because a lot of these companies haven't been approved to do some of the stuff they want. The political capital that was spent, though, on that fist bump is pretty remarkable here. And even Democrats are really angry about this. I don't know if you saw this tweet from Chris Murphy in Connecticut, the senator. I thought the whole point of selling arms to the Gulf states, despite their human rights abuses, nonsensical Yemen war, working against U.S. interests in Libya, Sudan, etc., was when an actual crisis came, the Gulf could choose America over Russia and China. Oh, man. And that's kind of what we're talking about here in the that middle of the That tweet's from a Democrat? That's right. Ouch. From Connecticut. Yeah. That, that is painful. Um, and yet, we do sell them a ton mm -hmm. of very serious weapons mm -hmm. with which they kill the a lot of people, you know? And uh, I think it's difficult to stomach, especially if they're gonna side with Russia and China at a time like this. What about releasing the SPR? I mean, I thought back in the day that was for emergency purposes, but it seems like now it's for Well, a million barrels years. a day goes on for a pretty long time here. It's kind of amazing. The, the conversation now though is really about refilling it and whether the United States will go buy Middle East oil at a premium to refill the SPR. That's gonna be a whole fun conversation after the holidays too. All right. so. We just want to get a sense here, Scott, of, of the, the big oil companies that you cover here in the U.S. Are they bullish about oil longer term? Are, is the peak oil discussion a thing of the past? But you're, you're bullish on these companies, right? I am. And uh, I think that the, comp the biggest comp issue the companies really have had uh, uh, with the Biden administration is really the fact that they've been demonized uh, with regard to uh, the whole energy transition. They're being made to be the, the black hat, essentially, right? Uh, I think all the major oil field companies have renewable energy businesses. They're all involved in these types of things, but they feel uh, like they've just been the whipping boy for so long. And the reality is the heart of their business your Halliburton, if your Schlumberger is oil and gas production, okay, and it will be 10 years from now, and it will be 20 years from now, despite the fact that they're harvesting and growing all of these energy transition businesses to support hydrogen, battery storage, Schlumberger had an announcement there yesterday that they're supporting uh, lithium mining. They're involved in all those businesses, but they have, feel like the government hasn't been forthright about the reality of the energy transition, how long it will take, and they feel like the demonization of carbon has has gone way too far. Mm -hmm.
Uh, look, ask, the, ask the, the, the Saudis how they feel about Europeans burning trash to stay warm this winter. There's such a political side to this. And, and it's such a global situation now that the United States may really find itself having to lean into this. The Biden administration wants to forward this transition, but as even Elon Musk, the king of the electric car, will right. tell you, we need more oil now to make that happen. So, I mean, is administration, are they sensitive to that? Because I don't see it. I mean, the kind of the comments that Scott sees from his companies. Well, we when just, we just saw President Biden, what was he, getting off a helicopter or something um, on the lawn at the White House saying, the Middle Eastern trip, the Saudi Arabian trip, wasn't about yeah, oil. Didn't, didn't regret it, of course. But he yeah. said that before they went to, so we wouldn't have this segment right now. Right. But of course, <laughs> it was about oil, largely. It was about security, but you can't have security without oil and vice versa. Uh, yes, look, this is uh, this is an issue when you also hear reports now on the terminal about loosening sanctions against Venezuela. So, you know, which bad yeah. guy right. do you want to buy from? All right, Joe Matthew, thanks so much for joining us on short notice. Joe Great Matthew, uh, covering all things uh, Washington, D.C. for Bloomberg uh, News Television. Every day at 5 p.m. Sound on on Bloomberg Sound Radio. On. Absolutely. Good stuff. Scott Levine, he covers the energy uh, space and industrial space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks, those guys, for joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Uh, looking at WTI crude oil, it's up 71 cents, $88.45 a barrel for WTI crude. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, this Elon Musk Twitter story is kind of like, you know, an accident. You, you pass on the road. You can't, have, you can't, you know, you can't help yourself but slowing down and take a look. And this has just been a, just an amazing saga here. So we want to break it down in some detail. We're going to do that with Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst for Wedbush Securities. Uh, also joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio is Mandeep Singh. He's our Senior Technology Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Dan, let's start with you. Is, is Elon Musk going to get this company? And if so, what's he going to do with it? Look, I think the easy part for Musk is actually buying it. The hard part is going to be fixing it. I mean, Twitter's really been you know, a disaster for the last four or five years from a growth perspective. But I think now there's still some high-stakes poker going on between Musk and the Twitter board. Lawsuit you know, going to Delaware is 11 days away. And I think the financing continues to be front and center especially the debt financing, and I think that's caused some nervousness, at least on the stock. Um, is he going to be able to buy it? What, what's, your, what's your thoughts on whether or not he actually gets this deal done? Yeah, I believe now, especially with the writing on the wall going into Delaware, I believe as early as next week he will own Twitter. You know, in terms of where this ultimately ends up, the board, I think, will agree to this. But, uh, you know, obviously, but what does that mean for Tesla? Dan, I mean, he, if he's going to own Twitter, he has to raise billions and billions of dollars. People are starting to back out now. Surely the banks, well, maybe the banks will try as well in terms of the debt financing. So how does he, does he have to sell Tesla shares? Yeah, so he, so it's a great question because obviously that's weighed on Tesla. He sold already a significant chunk, about $15 billion in terms of Tesla stock. You know, we've estimated he could sell upwards of another $3 billion. But, but I think that's sort of a contained amount. Now, when you talk about partners or other sort of bailing, 
that obviously would add to some of the financing stress. But And it continues to be argued, and I know we've talked about before, is that this was a nightmare deal from Musk. And now, ultimately, he's basically trading in caviar, Tesla stock, for a $2 slice of pizza in Twitter. That's I, I fully agree with that, but uh, this is of his own making. Mandeep Singh here, I want to bring you in. Let's assume Elon Musk buys Twitter. Realistically, you've known this company for a long time. Realistically, what can he do to improve the fortunes of Twitter? Well, so think of any social media uh, company, right? It's all about the network and, you know, the daily active users and how they engage. And ultimately, you can monetize the eyeballs. Granted, Twitter hasn't done a great job, but that's where I think it's fixable. It's not something that, you know, nobody can fix. It's tough, but I, I think Twitter is a unique asset simply because of, you know, the engagement and the community aspect they have. And he has talked about, you know, it should have a better cost structure. Right now, Twitter has the most bloated cost structure among all the social media names. So I think the first thing is to clean up the cost structure, but also figure out a way to monetize the engagement better. And that'll be a combination of both ads and subscriptions. And Mandeep, I mean, the, the balance sheet, assuming he does raise his $12.5 billion of, of debt, this seems going to be levered just by my super back of the envelope, you know, 10 times or something EBITDA. I mean, I, I need this thing to be two to three to four times EBITDA. Well, so that's where he can raise the EBITDA. And, and uh, that's what I mean, like if once you clean up the cost structure, you introduce subscriptions and look, it's not that easy. I mean, we can talk about a plan, but uh, there is no kind of playbook here. He's gonna try things out and he has to find someone to run the company first. He's not gonna do it himself. So clearly a lot of unknowns, but we know Twitter was the most inefficient when it comes to the social media platforms. And uh, I think there is a cleanup that can be done over there. Dan, does, does this, sour what has been your very bullish call on Tesla in a sense that perhaps Elon Musk is losing focus? Does that factor into your analysis? Well, I think that's been some of the worry here is that he's going to juggle a lot of balls, this SpaceX as well as Twitter. As Mandeep said, I do believe he farms out the management of it in terms of Twitter, but there's no way to sugarcoat it. This is just a disaster deal for Musk, and it's weighed on Tesla's stock. And then now... I think it's been put a little in the penalty box until this soap opera clears. His uh, text messages that were released as a result of the court case included one um, between Elon Musk and someone called TJ. It's widely speculated that that's his ex-wife, Tallulah Riley. Starts out with a tweet from her. She says, quote, can you buy Twitter and then delete it, please? XX. <laughs> this is going to... Is, is it just too optimistic and hopeful, Dan, that there's any chance he does that? Look, I, I, I think the bigger issue for Musk is that once he signed those documents, he crossed the invisible gray line. And now he's going to ultimately own Twitter. And he got cold feet. He tried to scapegoat in terms of the bot issue, which is a big issue. And now he essentially is going to own a house that he doesn't want to live in. All right, guys, this is just amazing. And, and Mandeep, just to, to finish up here, um, it, you know, I guess the question is, what do advertisers do, do you think? Are you hearing anything from the advertising community in terms of this change in ownership? 
Not really. I think Twitter is more brand focused, so nothing changes. They were never big in direct response ads, so it's not as if you know they have stopped innovating. Twitter was all about okay, sh uh, showing a display ad every four or five, yep. uh, you know, feed. And uh, look, I I think uh, I mean to give Elon credit, uh, you have to look at what he has accomplished. You know, when it comes to uh, Building a supercomputer yeah. and robot, so uh, nothing is impossible. I won't. Uh, all right, uh, ever the it. optimist, Mandeep yeah. Singh, Bloomberg Intelligence. We appreciate you here being live in Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And Dan Ives, Managing Director and Senior Equity Analyst on Wedbush Securities, with some unvarnished take on Elon Musk and his move to acquire Twitter. That 60/40 portfolio thing that we kind of grew up with. That didn't work out so well this year. We've got uh, stocks off anywhere from 20 to 30% this year. and We should have been shorting rates. We should have been shorting rates and got, made a 274% gain this year. And that's what we should have been doing. Hyder Saeed. Yeah, that's a uh, nice trade. Sorry, Saeed Hyder is the name of uh, the hedge fund hedge manager fund who did that. But a ton of hedge fund managers have made a killing this year. Yep, yep. If you can be nimble on those rates. Joe Meyer, uh, CEO and founder of Meyer Capital, joins us here. Joe, I'd love to get your perspective on kind of what we've all experienced year to date for 2022. Kind of how did you guys navigate through it and, and, and what's your outlook? Hey, Matt and Paul, thanks so much for having me on again today. Um, you know, obviously, 2022 has been an interesting year. Uh, crypto got hammered from the get go and uh, the technology has gotten beat up. We, we started really starting to go back into technology in the middle of June, June 17th, to be exact. Uh, we just felt that it had hit the bottom and it basically has come back down and almost tested that low. And so, you know, we're, we're excited about it. I mean, look, it's been a difficult year. You know, if you take a look at rates, Tom Barkin, the Philly Fed, really signaled what the Fed was going to do about four or five months ago when he came out very, very hawkish. And, and they've been following through on that. So I think, you know, the, to your point, the 60-40 isn't working right now, it, it, but you can't look at the world through one one lens. I mean, you yeah. have to look at it overall. Obviously, that 60-40 works for some, but not all. If you're well, younger, it should be closer I, to... I guess you want to buy low uh, anyway, um, and if we're not at the bottoms, um, we're pretty low right now. So what do you like? What what stocks um, are you a fan of right now? Yeah, so we, we're big into... Uh, workforce automation. So anything that can be done, finding the right technology people or the right worker skills is very, very difficult. And there's a lot of repetitive tasks that can be done uh, with with technology. So we're not only buying public companies, we're also acquiring some private companies in that space. And you but kind of made your fortune companies. in that area back in the day, yeah, right? Well, we've, we've, we've been an entrepreneur and four of our three companies are currently owned by public companies. So uh, those are all companies I founded, and so it's it's nice. been fun. It's all been in fintech and technology, and I and so I, I have a strong bias towards that. Obviously, I like uh, UiPath. I think they're doing some very interesting things with uh, workforce automation. And if you take a look at some of the security needs that are out there, you got Zscaler. Uh, you know that Zscaler hangs at 183. That's basically a 50% discount from where it was 12 months ago. Um, UiPath is significantly beat up, but you know it's a newer company. It's at 1360, I think, right now. It's been as high as a 90. The one company I've been into for a very, very long time is Zebra. So Zebra is, if you see all the barcode scanners, that's all about the Internet of Things and mm. tracking. And so those feed 
into the ERP systems and allow people to have a digital twin, if you will, meaning what can they see in the digital world that matches the physical world. And Zebra really drives that. For those of you and, playing and along at home, I just want to give the tickers out. Zebra is Z a Z-B-R-A. Um, UiPath right. is PATH, P-A-T-H, that's a ticker, and Zscaler is Z-S. You like MicroStrategy as well. Is that a, I a Bitcoin I, plane play? So everybody thinks it's a Bitcoin play, and it, it <laughs> certainly is, but it's also a technology play. But here's here's where they're going. And so uh, my son, who is, is, is doing some interesting things, you know, as we talk about it, and we were at a conference about a year ago called Bankless, or permissionless, I guess, is, is the name of it. But basically, what we saw there is it's really about Web 3.0. And everybody wants to call it the metaverse, whatever you want to call it. It's the decentralization of work, of stuff, of systems, of everything. And that's really what Web 3.0 is. And quite frankly, I think that uh, Michael Saylor and his team understand that. And I think if you buy... MicroStrategies today, you're getting it for Bitcoin, but you're also getting their enterprise business for free, and you're getting their startup mode of Web 3.0 for free. And if right. you look back on any of these names in five years, you're going to say, I'm glad I was on the call. So, Matt and Paul and Joe. Joe, <laughs> Joe, is it true that you spent four years of your life inside of an Army tank? I did spend actually five years active duty, another eight in the reserves. I was on M1 and M1A1 tanks, and so when I see when I see some of the things with tanks going on in the Ukraine, I cringe a little bit. But I also know the technology is, is fantastic where, in our in our. Where were you state? Where were you stationed? Uh, I was in Germany, and then I was also in the states. I was actually in the reserve during the first Gulf War, but uh, a lot of my friends were overseas, and yep. you know. I, what, what nobody really recognizes, we've got Veterans Day coming up here in about 30-some-odd yep. days. You know, it's the families that really do a lot for our veterans yep. because if the families at home aren't aren't supporting their soldiers and their, yep. their men and women in the field, it, it makes right. it difficult. Joe, thanks for your service. We really appreciate it, and thanks for coming on today. Joe Meyer, uh, CEO and founder of, of Meyer Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.